and welcome to episode 1972 of Effectively Wild, a baseball podcast from Fangraphs, presented by our Patreon supporters. I am Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer, joined by Meg Rowley of Fangraphs. Hello, Meg. How are you? I'm great, Ben. I mean, <laughs> I'm quite tired, but it's an exciting day. Good day. Big <laughs> yeah, it's, day. It's Prospect Week. It's uh, the the highlight of Prospect Week, I suppose one could say. The centerpiece Centerpe- of Prospect Week Centerpiece is better, because I yeah, don't want to slight anywhere yeah. else's work but but the big ranking the top yeah, 100 or i guess the kahuna. the top 112 this Listen, year is out. <laughs> expand your mind ben you know push <laughs> boundaries and just accept that like you know a hundred 101 220 mm-hmm. it's it would all be arbitrary oh so yeah you, you pick your your guys you you get all your 50 future values and above on there and then uh and then you don't impart to your readership the sense that like there's a a huge distinction between the guy ranked 100 and the guy ranked 112 and i'm not saying that other publications do that i think that we all put good you know bumpers on it but um but we're trying to you know help pave the way there Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. The rationale, I'm totally on board with uh, not just drawing an arbitrary line at a big round number right. or a top 101 in baseball prospectus's case, right. but but making the cutoff uh, future value right. as uh, Eric and co. do it at Fancrafts, yeah. where if your 102nd prospect has the same long-term outlook as your 100th, then why include one and not the other? Makes right. total sense. I, I guess you could quibble with the labeling, perhaps, of sure. it being a top 100 instead of top 112 but the top 100 are there they're just also some extra guys at the end (laughs) yeah and and look unfortunately seo man it does it does drive some stuff Uh and uh (laughs) not that the we hurt for attention on the hundred but like you know people have a, a number in mind an expectation so i like to think of it as offering a delightful prospect surprise, you know, like yeah. a like a special. If if we had a Fangraphs soda shop, you mm-hmm. know, with and shop we'd spell with two P's and an E because we're <laughs> fancy. Yeah, <laughs> I'm like listening to myself, and it's like, yeah, you sound tired, Meg. You know, we'd have like a prospect surprise, and and it would be I don't know what flavor it would be. It could get dicey, mm-hmm. but you know, it would be like that where it's like, oh, you get uh, you get a little extra. You know, it's like when they put um. They put uh, chopped up peanuts on a on a Sunday. <laughs> if sure. you can eat peanuts, some people can't eat peanuts. I can and do. <laughs> I'm lucky do they ever respect. go in the big salad? Uh, yeah, actually, I, oh, I prefer boy. prefer almonds, sliced almonds in yeah, the big salad. But but why I not both? That. It's a big salad. There are a lot of ingredients, but. <laughs> It's funny that you mentioned SEO because I I was going to bring that up too. Last episode, I did a stat blast where I briefly mentioned Jay So, Jay Wong So, and the fact that he led the 2003 Mets in Fangraphs War, which surprised me. And then today, we got an email. I, I think we both got it. I certainly got it. I think it was to the podcast address. And the subject line was just So. Right. And so I, I saw that and I thought, oh, someone's writing in maybe to correct me about JSO leading the 2003 Mets in war. Yeah, get or get some correction to, emails yeah, this week. <laughs> offer some, some memory about JSO or say they appreciated the shout out to JSO. And then I clicked on the email and no, it was about search engine optimization. Uh-huh. <laughs> in my defense, the subject line was not capital S, capital E, capital oh. O. It was just capital S and then lowercase E. E-O. Oh. So I thought it was the name so and not 
the the acronym, but it was I the would letter. absolutely make that exact same yeah. mistake. Okay, thank you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I haven't looked at our podcast email in a couple of days, uh, <laughs> at least not with the depth they normally do, because um, I don't know if you heard, but we did the top one hundred today. Yes, <laughs> but I would absolutely have made that mistake. I also feel like Ben, I maybe have to issue a slight correction on the pod. Mm, okay, I have heard on on local Phoenix media that mm-hmm. we are. The fifth largest metro, but I guess that like at least as of the last census, we we fall below that. But I still think that people would be surprised how big the Phoenix metro is. Yeah. So I think I think the general point about us needing to recalibrate our understanding of media market stands. Mm-hmm. But a, a listener did point out that at least as of the last census, now more people have moved since right. then, including me. Mm-hmm. You know, You're right? Yes, yeah. you have single handedly. Yeah, <laughs> I upped the number by to, one, tenth to fifth. Yeah. No, I, I do think that scale. Phoenix, uh, at least, I, I looked that up too. I, I think Phoenix has the fifth largest population of any city as of uh, at least 2021. So it's it's fifth in that category, at least, mm. but maybe a little lower in media market if you consider the whole area. Maybe, maybe. Yeah. So maybe, it's growing. maybe we were both right. I think is perhaps our takeaway here. In a here. sense, yes. In a sense, you know. Uh, <laughs> well, <laughs> a lot of people here, you know. It's getting mm-hmm. more expensive, so it must be true that there are a lot of people here. <laughs> right. Well, I'm glad that you are up and about and conscious and upright well, and well, awake. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, mostly. I'm happy that I am, too, because my daughter is oh, right, sick. and kid. Yeah, well, <laughs> there is that just generally. But also, she started daycare recently um, and and true to form, she got sick almost instantly, <laughs> which which oh, no. is what I understand Poor always Sloan. happens, right? Because yeah. hell is other people. <laughs> and yeah. so and their when, germs. Yes, when you socialize, uh, then you are liable to, to catch things from people. And the common yeah. cold is undefeated after yeah. however many millennia. So it's uh, nothing serious. It's just the usual rite of passage and the runny yeah. nose and the cough and all that. She did have one unpleasant night where uh, it's probably not even just the discomfort of having a cold, but also being sick for the first time in your life and being right. like, what the hell is this? This yeah. is not my normal state. What is happening here? <laughs> I would imagine it's probably pretty confusing to be sick for the first time and there's no yeah. way to explain it to someone who maxes out at two-word sentences right. at this stage. <laughs> so we just did our best and, and she's uh, healing, but my wife, Jessie, caught the cold oh, and course. has the cough and I uh, assumed it was coming for me, but it has not yet, so I'm sort of just like crowing about my immune system right now that I have fought this off successfully, and probably pride goes before the fall. Yeah. And, uh, when we next record, I will be You'll <laughs> barely like me. audible. Yeah, but thus far, at least, I'm, I'm still standing. So kudos to me. <laughs> that was how I thought things were going to go for me in December. And then I got the flu so bad I couldn't go to winter meetings. So yeah, I hope right. that that doesn't happen to you, Ben. But yeah, too. can you imagine being... I mean, like, she won't remember being sick for the first time because no. she's so little. Mm-hmm. I'm glad to hear that she's on the mend. I hope Jesse feels better soon, too. But it's like, you know, when you're a little kid, it's not that you don't experience displeasure or frustration or, you know, grumpiness. But having to, like, isolate and then catalog it, like, what? Oh, right. This is very different yeah. than whatever you know, kid-related grumpiness she normally experiences. Mm -hmm. I don't get the sense that she's like a particularly grumpy kid, but like all kids have their moments, you know. 
Yeah, no, she's fairly good-natured. But yeah, you have no context for right. sickness, for illness. So you don't know, is this going to get worse? Is this going to last right. forever? You know, right. It's bad enough when one of us catches a cold, but we oh, know yeah. oh, it's uh, it's not life-threatening, most likely, and it will probably pass in a couple days. So we just got to tough it out. But you know, when you're 16 minutes old or whatever, you may not be able to make that calculation. So yeah. <laughs> anyway, I'm experiencing myself the rite of passage of your kid getting sick when they start to associate with other kids and then uh, possibly spreading that disease to you and your partner. But so far, could be worse. Yeah, my sister and brother-in-law have just been like sick for like six years, you know? I feel like they've just forever been sick. A lot to look forward to. Yeah, I mean, there is a lot to look forward to, but the the sickness, not on the list, I don't think. Yes, also a lot to dread. So we are doing a baseball podcast, not a sickness podcast, fortunately. Later in the episode, we will be talking to Eric Long and Hagen about the prospect rankings. But as usual, you know, when we sit down to, to drop our plan for an episode of the podcast, I think what we generally do is we go and, and sit out in the sun in our shorts, right? And we have a, a blank piece of paper with our logo in the top right corner, the Effectively Wild Corp logo. And, uh, and then we balance that blank piece of paper on our legs, which look like hot dogs from that angle. And then at the top of the paper, we write write podcast and underline it yeah. and then the magic flows from there so so that's what we've done today inspired by Alex Rodriguez so we take all of our cues from A-Rod and and from his book writing and for anyone who does not understand the reference that I'm making here do yourself a favor check out our show notes where I will link to uh, A-Rod's latest <laughs> viral Instagram uh, whatever it was where he passed along the news that he's working on a book in the most inevitably A-Rod fashion where uh, he he said, decided to start writing my book on lessons learned in business and baseball and just uh, showed the scene that I described, except with book instead of podcast, just a blank piece of paper or sheaf of papers. There's a whole bunch of papers there. So he is planning to really crank out the pages, it looks like. But he just wrote book at the top against his uh, nearly naked legs. I said shorts, but you know what? Now that I'm looking at it again, I, yeah. I don't know that we can assume that there are shorts in the picture. I mean, <laughs> they they're... would have to be short shorts. There, there's a shadow that made me think there were shorts, but that might just be a shadow. So he, he might be just <laughs> totally think... nude as he is working on his book. I think that he... I think that he is wearing, at the very least, he is wearing like boxer briefs. It appears. Yeah. He appears to. There's a lot of leg there. There's a lot of leg. You know, he's doing, (laughs) he's doing the classic gals at the beach. You know, uh, Instagram shot where you're like, are they legs? Are they hot dogs? Who knows? You know. Right. And (laughs) those are legs. You know. Mm -hmm. So. Yes, they're hairier than you want your hot dogs to be. Yeah, Preferably. I mean they're as hairy as legs often are, but mm-hmm. you're right. You don't want you don't want. I I would argue any hair on your hot dogs. I think no, you want that ideally. to be a hair free experience. But um, I think he's wearing at least boxer briefs in the backyard of his home, which looks <laughs> yes, like it's his, from Parasite. His compound, yeah, <laughs> yes, nice uh, landscaping, just neatly manicured trees, and he's uh, catching some rays. I mean. I've uh, written books, and and this is not how I did it. 
but I'm reconsidering whether I should have because this looks idyllic. I mean, I'm not someone who tends to soak up the sun because I am a pretty pallid person. (laughs) And so it would probably be hazardous to my health and not actually lead to a tan. But this this looks nice. If if you can do it this way, then uh, I recommend it. I'd love to know how things went after he wrote the word book at the top. Did subsequent words flow or did he realize actually writing is pretty hard and maybe I'm going to put this down for a little while and uh, I'll clean the house. Uh, You know, I'm sure he has uh, people to do that for him, but I'll just, uh, I'll think and I'll luxuriate and lounge in the sun and and at some point the inspiration will flow and I will return to this and ultimately I just have book written at the top of this page for who knows how long, but I wish it well. I mean, every writer has faced that situation, right? The blank page and there's got to be one word on it and he's got two words just to start because he has a rod corp in the top right right. so already the word count is up to two and once you add book we're at three and we're really on a roll so uh, for his sake i I hope that uh the words came quickly and that it was not just confined to book at the top yeah i i (laughs) i mean it's certainly as hard as it is to write a book i would imagine it feels closer to a thing A-Rod could actually accomplish as opposed to like the time that he posted a photo of his clearly <laughs> plowed driveway while holding a shovel as if to suggest he had done all of that in front of his house slash dentist office. <laughs> yeah. I don't understand this. This uh, this is not the point of this podcast. This is This feels like a thing almost for the Patreon pod. Ben, but mm-hmm. I don't understand these houses because they look like a medical dental building, you know? Yeah. I'm like, is that where you want to live in a medical dental building where they do medical dental things? Yes. If you look at ballplayer real estate listings, which I do fairly often because oh, yeah. I, I subscribe to Craig Calcaterra's newsletter and, and he often flags when some MLB veteran sells some massive McMansion somewhere that's like 12,000 square feet right. on half an acre plot of land and it's got like 10 bedrooms and it's for some reason excessively ornate and yeah. very strangely appointed and yes. looks like this is impressive in a sense it's like weirdly rococo it, it looks like versailles or something yeah, it's like it is who would live here maximalism or, for sure yeah or it's just very garish <laughs> it's yeah. just um, but but yes I, I don't know that their interior decoration is always to my liking necessarily right. i don't know that i would do the same thing with the space but i envy the amount of space although even True. that sometimes seems excessive but sometimes yeah like yeah. how many people you got living at that house right But look, I I love A-Rod's social media presence just in general. And this one, you know, him just kind of in a casual setting and lightly dressed. Uh, The other one that comes to mind... May Light, have lightly dressed, <laughs> possibly not dressed at all. Because I think he has again, he at least has boxer briefs on. I'd like to think so. I think I, so. We can't confirm that necessarily, but uh, there's one that I remember, and I forget whether this was from his Instagram or it may have been from J Lo's when they were still together. Mm. R.I.P. A Rod and, and J Lo. She seems but, fine. Yeah, no, she's fine, and and he seems to have moved on, too. I don't know if he's fine, but (laughs) he's also dating someone. But there was one where he was just, you know, candid in a bubble bath, Mm. which, look, I support the bubble bath. You know, Are you a bathman? 
I, I'm very much a bathman. I, I have not been a bubble bathman of late, but there oh. have been times in my life where I've enjoyed a nice bubble bath. And, and again, I appreciate it because, you know, it's maybe not the most stereotypically macho image. Sure, yeah. And, and he is counteracting that yeah. and i appreciate that about a rod but the great thing about that one where he was sitting in the bubble bath and you know the bubbles were tastefully arranged sure, so yeah. that one could only see the upper half of the centaur <laughs> that is a rod right oh my God, but the best the, thing forgotten from the best part of it is that you could see his face reflected in the window oh, that boy. his bubble bath looked out on and for some reason, his face is just like a, a rictus grin. It, it's like you can see all of his teeth and he looks like he's almost grimacing, which I Terrible. think is probably because the sun was shining in the window oh. and probably he was sort of squinting a little. Sure, but sure. <laughs> it's just an extreme expression. So that was just kind of burned onto my corneas and my retinas for, wow. for all time. But look, I like the A-Rod social media presence because with anyone else, you might see this book image and you would think that it was calculated. It was maybe tailored to go viral, you know, like oh, yeah. people will eat this up and it's it's kind of like, you know, I'm, I'm going for the likes here. And with A-Rod, I don't think that's the case because- huh. I don't think he was like, this will go viral. I don't think he is necessarily always conscious of the ways in which he's weird, <laughs> right? And, sure. And so sometimes he does these things and, and seems sort of like a, a simulacrum of a human yeah. in a way that is amusing, but to me also endearing because I, I think this is his authentic self. Now, yeah. when he's on TV and he's blathering about bunting and yeah. small ball constantly, that to me, I, I think, is probably pandering to some degree because I don't think he did that initially in his broadcasting career right. when everyone liked him, when he was right. just doing pregames and we weren't exposed to his play-by-play uh, -play or, or analyst yeah. stylings for hours a game. And that, you know, I, I just refuse to believe that a guy who hit almost 700 homers and never sacrificed bunted himself after he turned 24 sincerely thinks that it's always the best play for anyone who is batting to bunt. So I don't believe that that is uh, his his inner self the way that I do believe that when he's kissing a mirror or when he is uh, <laughs> having a photo in a bubble bath or when he is just labeling a blank piece of paper book and propping it on his uh, mostly book. nude knees <laughs> that book. that these are things that he is doing knowing that that will cause a sensation. I think he's uh, just doing what comes naturally to him and it is sensational because it would not be natural to anyone else. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to offer that it, it might be a little bit of both, it right? Could be. Like yeah, maybe he has come to understand over time what his brand is online. <laughs> and I I feel like he he does strike me he strikes me as a man with an eye toward virality. Mhm. Mm we really, in a couple of years, just didn't come up with a better way to describe that, did we? And no. I think, you know, you don't you don't buy an NBA franchise or part of one without some eye toward being around, you know, to being mm -hmm. a, a guy people know and have thoughts yeah. about. And hey, this is promotion for his future book once he right. has more than one or three words. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, sometimes it's important to just put any words down so yeah. that you have something to work with, yeah, right? Yeah, just got to get started. Yeah, You know, because it's just a blank piece of paper mm -hmm. and 
good luck. Right. But I think it can be a little bit of both. Like, I think that he, I think he wants to be like a guy who's like part of culture, who people think of when they think of sports. I think Mm -hmm. he wants that still. Yes. And he can want that and still be a stone cold weirdo. And like, those are not, to (laughs) my mind, I don't think that those are mutually exclusive. I think those are projects that sit quite well next to one another. And so, Mm -hmm. yeah, I'm happy that he is like, you know what the people want? Hot dog legs and a book. That's what they want. <laughs> right. They want hot dog legs now and a book later. That is yeah. what they are in for. And I hate to say this, but he's probably right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. People would read an A-Rod book for sure. Oh, how how has he not written one? Yeah, right. I mean, if he were totally candid and, and yeah. honest in it, I would absolutely read that book. I mean, he should have learned a lot of lessons, you know, both from good experiences and bad experiences in his life in business and baseball. So if that's what his book delivered, I would absolutely be interested in reading it. I'd be much more interested in reading that than most athlete autobiographies, right, which are sort of sanitized and they don't want to reveal too much or maybe they haven't led as interesting a life in their sport as A-Rod has, right? And and I think that the degree of thirstiness that exists in the A-Rod persona, Mm -hmm. that actually has, has drawn me to him because, you know, during his career, at least prior to the PED stuff and the suspensions and everything, I was sympathetic to him because it seemed to me at least that he was maybe more sensitive and and even more insecure. I'm I'm projecting a little bit, but not totally because I think he's made comments to this effect than the typical elite athlete who's like an inner circle great statistically, right? right? Like it seems like most of those people are just wired in a different way where they are like, completely confident, you know, perhaps excessively confident at all times. And A-Rod never really seemed that way. Yeah. And I felt that at least earlier in his career, he kind of got a bad rap where people would label him unclutch and everything. And he was always held up to the golden boy, Derek Jeter, who, at least statistically speaking, was not nearly the player A-Rod was, right? And and Jeter gets credit for selflessness and leadership, whereas it was A-Rod who moved to third base so that Jeter could keep playing short, even though A-Rod was a better defender at short, et cetera. And so, you know, A-Rod might not have certain intangible qualities that Jeter did actually bring and and that were valuable. But also, Jeter, just a pretty bland persona for most of his career, as we discussed recently when we learned that Jeter would be joining A-Rod on the Fox pregame shows, which, unless they're actively feuding, which would be very entertaining, but I highly doubt that Jeter would engage in. I don't know that that will be the best TV. But I was just, I found him a more compelling figure. You know, I would rather read a book about or by him or a documentary about or by him than I would for Jeter. And obviously, A-Rod sort of poisoned the well with his actions later in his career or actions earlier in his career that came out later in his career. But the point is, uh, he's just such a great player and such a flawed figure that I'm drawn to that story more so than I am with someone who's just always completely in command and respected and seems to always say the right thing or not say the wrong thing because he right. never says anything revealing. Right. Anyway, I'm just saying that if Arod finds that it's harder to write a book than he hoped, call me, Alex, you know, because uh, maybe I, we could work together on this thing. Who knows? I, I wouldn't be a ghostwriter because I wouldn't do it uncredited. And, and I'm also a living, breathing being. So just as the extra innings runner is not a ghost runner, I would not be a ghost writer. 
but you never know. I could be a co-author, but who knows? Maybe he can handle it himself. The only rule is that it has to wear boxer briefs. (laughs) Working title. All right. Works for me. Another thing I want to say is that I think we have to get over updates on Shohei Otani's future and contract status. I agree. Because, look, folks, we're just not going to know We're not going to know. (laughs) Where he's going to be playing in 2024. Yeah. And that's okay. Yes. So this week... His agent made some comments that were completely unrevealing. I mean, Derek Jeter levels of (laughs) not saying anything interesting. And these comments were breathlessly reported. So here's an ESPN story by Alden Gonzalez, which, you know, accurately reports uh, the quotes and everything. But I don't know that it's newsworthy. The headline is... Agent says Shohei Otani has right to explore free agency. (laughs) (laughs) It's like, yeah. (laughs) Was that in doubt? Did we not know that Shohei Otani has the same collectively bargained rights and service time considerations and so forth as every other player? I assumed we know that. So really nothing at all was revealed here. So his agent, Nez Bolello, who works for CAA Sports, he was asked... I don't know that he volunteered these comments, but of course he's going to be asked about this, whether he would be open to negotiating an extension or whether Otani would this spring training. And so he said, I've always been open to it, but there's several layers to this one. And Shohei's earned the right to play through the year, explore free agency, and we'll see where it shakes out. Is there any new information? No. No. So he's not shutting the door on an extension right that would have been newsworthy if he said sure. no way i'm not even going to talk about it we're not considering it okay right. report that or if he said we're totally receptive let's talk you know we, right. we want to be angels for life right that would be news but he says open to it but he's earned the right <laughs> to play through this year explore free agency and we'll see where it shakes out then they asked a follow-up whether he could clarify whether that meant that a deal this spring was unlikely, which, again, I guess if he said it was unlikely, I mean, you would have to assume it's unlikely. But if he right. said it was unlikely, I guess that would technically be news. And he refused to even say that much. He said, right. I've said it before. I'll say it again. We're taking one day at a time. <laughs> I'm not putting the cart before the horse on this one. So absolutely information-free content, I would say. No news reported. (laughs) I mean, did not comment on the status of negotiations or anything. Just uh, we are receptive to it. We are technically open to it. And also, if we don't sign an extension, he will be a free agent at the end of the season because he has earned that right, which we all knew. I have sympathy for it because, like, if you're at the presser, right, if you're at the spring training presser, and Otani is there, you do have to ask that question. Sure. Because, mm-hmm. like, maybe the answer would surprise us. Maybe, you know, he would be, like you said, he'd say, yeah, I'd love to stay in L.A. Let's see what we can get done. Or maybe he'd <laughs> say, I think Mike Trout smells. And I don't <laughs> right? be his teammate anymore, you know, because he smells. Mm-hmm. It could be that. Yep. Again, he didn't say that. I, nope. I'm offering it as a hypothetical. But that would be nurseworthy, yeah. Yeah, although he'd say it in like a coy way where you knew he was joking because he <laughs> right. seems like a nice guy. Yes. But, you know, you have to ask the question, but you're right. Like I, I did see a couple of uh, folks in the Facebook group be like, ah, and, and start to catastrophize. And on the one hand, like, I don't think it is likely that he returns to the Angels. So mm-hmm. you are no, 
it is no less catastrophic. It's just a day closer. So I guess in that respect, catastrophize away. But mm-hmm. I agree with you that I don't think that this yielded anything all that surprising. It's like, hey, um, is the generational talent who has transcended the sport and is likely to sign the biggest deal, not just in baseball free agency, but in sports free agency, period, mm-hmm. going to test free agency? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he's going to do that. Which, <laughs> right. You know, yeah. Of course he is. Like why, why wouldn't he? Right. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I guess you could say, well, why wouldn't Mike Trout have done that and he didn't do that? But sure. I think Mike Trout uh, maybe wired a little bit differently when it comes to maximizing money. Now, Shohei Otani you could say the same thing because of course he came to MLB right. when his uh, signing potential financially was artificially limited right. and he still came over because yep. he wanted to compete against the best in the world. He wanted yep. to show what he could do in MLB. So I guess you could say that money is not his primary motivating factor. However, it seems like he really wants to win and he has not yeah. been able to win with the Angels despite his best efforts. So why would he not test the market? You know, Mike right. Trout at least has been in the Angels organization his whole career and came right. up with them and did experience some more success earlier in his career, competitively True. speaking, than Otani has since he joined the Angels. So, and like they did back up a Brinks truck for him yeah, at the time. Right. So, mm-hmm. you know. There's yeah, that too. I mean, it was probably still a, a discount relative it was definitely to a discount. what Mike Trout would be worth, although I don't know that any team would have paid him the, the right. entirety of what he would have been worth. But, right. you know, still, he probably could have made more if he had waited. But yes, yes I, I mean, why would you not wait at this point? Right. He's one year away from free agency. The Angels have not been successful. He will be extremely in demand. If he wants to go back to the Angels, I'm sure he'll have that option as a free agent. But, sure. but really, what have the Angels done? to make Shohei Otani want to commit to them, other than, of course, using him in the way that he wants to be used, which is not nothing. I mean, that's a significant factor. It is something, for sure. Other teams that would not have done that or would not have been as receptive to that initially, probably. So that may have earned them some goodwill, but still, right? So, and I guess they kept asking the agent about that because he kept going on and saying nothing. It's like (laughs) he, he kept reframing the basic state of affairs in slightly different ways without adding any new information. Shohei's been here five years. Now this is his final year. <laughs> so he's <laughs> explaining uh, like how many years Here's you need to play works. to qualify for free agency. Let me explain the CPA and service time to you. Yeah, here's and now we goes. have free agency. So of course there's going to be a lot of questions. What does he want to do? Where's he going to go? All of it. And I've said this so many times and Shohei has said it as well. We really take it day by day, one day at a time. <laughs> That's great. (laughs) And even though he said it many, many times, it's still news every time he says it, I guess. So I'm just saying, like, you know, we're probably uh, many months away from finding out where Shohei Otani is going to play in 2024. And unless something improbable happens, in which case it will be news, if he were to sign an extension, if he were to be traded, obviously, or be on the trade market, which will probably be be a story at some point this season, unless the Angels get off to a great start, (laughs) which, as we know, the Angels always do. So, (laughs) but I wonder how many times we will be subjected to the same essentially 
no comment with some kind of comment. I don't know whether it will be worth headlines every time. If you want to do a tweet, okay. The the bar for a tweet is extremely low. So I'm open to tweets about the non-comments here that we're getting, essentially. But a big story that is shared and, and treated as somewhat revealing? I don't think so. I think we, we just got to wait it out. It's okay. We don't need to know where he'll be. He'll be somewhere. We will get to enjoy him somewhere. Yeah, I mean, like, aren't there big bases to take photos of? You know, isn't <laughs> exactly. there? Aren't there un, unexplored bits of potential in big base photography right. that, you know, that lay ahead of you? Go do yeah. that instead. Big bases. And not only that, but there are secret drills going on at Mets camp, right? Oh. Did you see this news? So our friend Evandrelic, he tweeted the other day that at Mets camp, I believe this was the first full squad workout that the Mets were doing, reporters were told to leave the field oh. because of a proprietary drill. Oh. That the Mets were conducting. Huh. And we know nothing else about what this drill was. So ever since I saw this, I have been wondering what could it have been? What is uh, Buck Showalter and his staff cooking up here that the Mets <laughs> did not want reporters to see and spoil for everyone? I mean, do you have any theories? This is a very NFL style sort of secret, you know, close to the media right. workout because yeah. we're we don't drawing do that up. Very we're, much. Yeah, we're running some sort of special play, right? <laughs> I mean, there, there are only so many possibilities right. for that sort of thing in baseball. And so I'm intrigued yeah. by what the Mets might be doing here. I mean, there are a number of possibilities, I suppose, what with all the new rules and, and possible responses to those. So any theories on, on what the Mets might be doing that they don't want the world to know yet? Which is like, look, I, I, some people were sort of salty about, you know, like uh, this should be open. And, and Evan even said in his tweet, you know, it's an entertainment product. And so restricting reporters' mm. access to it is maybe not the best. And, and perhaps there's a slippery slope of some sort here, and, and we wouldn't sure. want all workouts to be closed. But right. I also understand if they think they have some kind of play here that will give them a competitive advantage, why they might want to preserve that. And, you know, there's already a lot of practice and drilling that we don't see. It's not like we see every batting practice session conducted in the cages uh, inside the stadium or, or every bullpen session so if right. there's a, a fielding drill that we don't get to see immediately I'm kind of okay with that i'm curious i guess i would prefer for my curiosity to be satisfied immediately and not have to wait for the cookie but if anything comes of this drill presumably we will see it in games right and then it won't be a secret anymore which makes me wonder also why they think it's worth preserving the secret because as soon as they use this we will know and everyone else will know. And you would think that they would probably have to debut it in a spring training game, right? And unless the idea is that they will practice it so thoroughly in these drills that they won't actually use it until the regular season starts. And then they will shock the world with whatever it is in a game that actually counts. But one day in the not too distant future, if this uh, proves to be an advantageous strategy, then we will know what it was that they were practicing and what their proprietary drill is. So I have three potential answers. Would you okay. like me to offer them to you in yes. <laughs> ascending order of seriousness or descending order of seriousness? Ooh. Well, let's go with ascending. Let's start with the silly ones. Okay. So the 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 first and silliest is that they were doing psychedelics communally <laughs> and they were worried about how it would go. So they didn't want a bunch of cameras around and they asked the media to leave. So that's my silly answer. I mm -hmm. mean, that's my silliest answer. Yeah. 
My my medium silly answer is you'll have to forgive me because I don't recall what year it was that they did this. I don't know what day it is, so how would I know what year it was that they did this? But I recall, Ben, the Mets in spring training, this was in the pre-Showalter days and definitely the pre-Steve Cohen days, I think. I think the pre-Steve Cohen days. Anyway, it was like in the recent past. Mm -hmm. They did a practice drill in camp of winning the World Series. Oh, that's right. Yeah. I think, Where, I think, yeah, that that was not too long ago. It wasn't too long ago. Maybe yeah. maybe Cohen had bought the team, but I don't think Showalter was managing them yet. I don't, I don't know. We're going to have to put our investigative minds to that. But, you know, they practiced having- 2021. 2021, okay. Mm-hmm. Having the ball fly out to the outfield to catch the final out mm-hmm. of, the World, of a World Series victory. Yep. And then they all practiced coming in and celebrating, and being mm-hmm. together, and being excited. And there was real energy behind yeah. the drill. Like they were, you know, they were not loafing. They mm-hmm. were really practicing winning the World Series, which I found to be like, I mean, obviously that is a an experience that I cannot actually relate to in any real way. <laughs> mm-hmm. But I found that to be kind of, delightful and relatable where it's like and maybe we talked about it on the pod at the time i don't remember now but you know in moments of extreme emotional upheaval which don't necessarily have to be negative right like if you win Mm -hmm. the world series you're feeling good feelings but you're feeling a lot of them you have big good feelings like you don't know what your face is gonna do you know, and uh, you don't know, like, what you're going to say. You don't know what weird, goofy look you're going to have. Like, it mm-hmm. it helps to practice. Sure. If yeah. it is at all important to you to have, like, like, comportment or dignity in that moment, which, to be clear, if you win the World Series, you do not have to be dignified. But, <laughs> no. you know, you might end up having a picture of you looking like a goofus in the image service that we use at Fangraphs forever. And one day I'm going to have to write up something about you and I'm going to pick a funny photo, you know? Mm-hmm. And yeah. so it might and that be-, could be kind of a common motivational coach yeah. kind of tactic, right? Like right. envision I'm sure the yourself having was success. The actual, and- mm-hmm. the actual purpose of the drill and not let us help these grown men emotionally regulate <laughs> themselves. Right. Although maybe we should have more of that. Who could say? Mm-hmm. So that's my medium, not silly, but like medium answer. Yeah. So they wanted to do that again, but but not have it get out because right. uh, the way that 2021 season ended for right. the Mets, uh, people, people looked goofed back retrospectively yeah. and were like, oh, they jinxed. They were overconfident, yeah. right? which I think is kind of an unfair reading. But, you know, yeah. it's the Mets. So they're going to get unfair readings as well as some fair readings that make them look bad, too. <laughs> right. And then my like my serious answer, the answer I find to be the most plausible is that they have some take on the new shift restrictions right. that they're working through. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're right. We're going to see them as soon as you do them, right? Mm-hmm. Like you can't keep that in your back pocket forever. I mean, maybe you could. Maybe you have like a special, a really special thing mm-hmm. when you got to, you know, you really got to get Trey Turner or something. I don't know. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know. Why. Like he's a division rival. I don't even remember. But, you know. <laughs> Maybe that was it, that they were trying some stuff out because as we talked about after I went to the rules demonstration, like the league tried really hard to anticipate all of the ways that teams would try to circumvent the Mm -hmm. new shift restrictions. And I think that they are realistic that they will 
initially fail in that endeavor because teams are wily and motivated Mm -hmm. and, you know, they're smart. So Mm -hmm. they're going to try some stuff. And then the league will have to be like, no, no, that is that's a violation of the rule. And of course, the umpire has the right to sort of generally say you're trying to circumvent the rule. So I'm assessing a penalty to you. But, you know, there might be some windows that teams have where it's like, well, we're trying this thing. And it's not technically against the rules. And MLB hasn't told us, no, no, no. And so we get to deploy it for like maybe even just a game, mm-hmm. depending on the umpiring situation. So I, I think that that's probably the most likely thing. Or they practice the World Series. Or, you know, they were like, we will not listen to Meg. We are not afraid of mushrooms. We do not think they will turn us into <laughs> zombies. Psychedelics for everyone. <laughs> That was where my mind went to, not the, the psychedelics. psychedelics. Ah, <laughs> I was like, oh, we're so connected. What but hosts? The last thing about practicing positioning stuff, because you mentioned that MLB said that you can't get running starts, right? right. Now, I don't know how well they'll be able to enforce that because right. uh, there's sometimes like where a fielder would normally be in motion anyway. I mean, if, what if a runner is going or something? So I don't know. There might be some leeway there in some situations. But thinking along those lines and, and because I was right. thinking of NFL style plays because of the NFL-ish nature of this closed practice, you know that play that the Eagles notably did yeah. where they push the quarterback yeah. You know, they did this often with Jalen Hurts and, and some yeah. other teams did it too, but this is no longer against the rules in the NFL to push another player. It is illegal to pull right. another player, but you can push other players. So the Eagles. Well, for would- now. Yes, for now, but they perhaps uh, did this so much and so effectively that, that it will might be banned not be again. able to anymore. <laughs> right. But they would basically do like a, a human wave sort of where they would just propel the quarterback on a, I don't even know if you can call it a, a quarterback sneak. It wasn't very sneaky. It was just right. like, we we're just going to mass several large people behind this person and just physically propel him forward. Yeah. So that if you just need to gain some small amount of yardage and, and push someone over the line, then you can just do that. And it's it's tough to stop because you just have so much force and momentum behind it. Can't imagine it's pleasant to to be the quarterback in that scenario and to be sandwiched between huge humans. But it does seem to be effective. So I was wondering whether uh, maybe something like that could work, where if you're not allowed to get a running start, maybe you, you can line up the, the third baseman <laughs> next to the shortstop, and then you just have the third baseman push. The shortstop yeah. and just like run along, you know, pushing his back so that he can get a, a great running start and and cover more ground. So that could be something that Walter was thinking here. I don't know whether it is actually related to positioning because no one Woodward, who I, I shouted out recently, he has a, a newsletter, a Substack called The Advanced Scout. He's someone who used to write for me at Baseball Prospectus and then went to work for the Braves and and recently left the front office and he's uh, writing again. And he suggested he thought it was more likely maybe that they were practicing some pickoff plays related to the restriction on on pickoff attempts. I don't know if you'd need a a full team to do that necessarily, a full squad, but he was saying, you know, there there might be some things that would be advantageous there. And he ran through a couple techniques, whether it was just like 
holding the ball as as long as you possibly could and and he likened it to an NFL style play also like a hard count on fourth and short and he's saying you know with runners on like you have 20 seconds so you could wait until the very last second and you could delay and and then whirl if you've already used your two pickoffs or you've used at least one and you'd think the runner won't think that you'll use a second one so something like that you could practice or maybe like a a whirl like timing play where if you're not doing as many pickoff attempts you don't have to have the first baseman play off the bag and so he could sort of sneak in there the way that a a third baseman sometimes will and I guess a first baseman too and and sort of sneak in clandestinely while the runner is not paying attention and you could time it so that he gets to the bag at the right time for you to whirl and do that pickoff play so I'll link to his suggestions I, I think there are some good ideas there so your options are somewhat limited because there's only so much time and you only have so many pickoff plays to work with but I could see that being an area where maybe if you practice something really well you could differentiate yourself because I do think that'll have a pretty big impact on the game but yeah once you use these things once you deploy them for the first time everyone will see it so even if you have some incredible idea unless it's something that takes a ton of practice so that Unless you practiced it for all of spring training and secret drills, you won't actually be able to do it day right. one in MLB and games that count. I don't know how much of a competitive advantage you could conceivably get from this. But hey, if they think they're onto something, then uh, more power to them. I'm just very excited to see all of the things that they are going to try that aren't going to work. Because you know that the, the <laughs> yes. teams are going to try stuff and they should try stuff. Mm-hmm. They should try stuff. Yep. And like some of that stuff will be legal stuff and some of that stuff they'll go now, now, now. Right, exactly. Ben, can I break some some news on the pod? I'm not the one breaking the news. Can I break the news to uh, some news to you on this year podcast? Does this Shohei slide? Otani still have the right to explore free agency? <laughs> it's not Otani related. It's not that big. No, <laughs> okay. it's pretty big though. Are you ready? Yeah. Noah Song has been discharged from the Navy and will be in Philly's camp tomorrow. Oh, well, how about that? How about that, Ben? We're going right. to have to have Bauman on to talk about just that. When are we got we got Eric coming up. We have to have mm-hmm. Bauman on to talk about it. Who knows? What, <laughs> yeah. what, a, what a thing that, that is would an be. interesting development. I do have one more thing to relate oh, here, and it, okay, it is sorry. also it is also related to, to murky, shadowy dealings in Florida, mm. <laughs> although of a more serious nature. So, you know, mm. whenever we wade into waters that are even vaguely, quote unquote, political, yeah. no matter how closely linked to baseball they are, we inevitably get some one star iTunes review from someone who says we should stick know, to sports. Ben. I haven't. <laughs> I know I, you don't look at them anymore. <laughs> I don't look at them anymore. I have a little sticky on my on my desktop because yeah. they made me feel sad. Uh, yeah, they're mostly very nice, but, but oh, well, not exclusively. Good. However, <laughs> there is something baseball related I, I wanted to bring up, and I'm sure you saw this news because it was pretty big news and we didn't mention it earlier this month, but yeah. it was reported that there were some baseball books that were possibly banned right in Duval County in Florida, which is uh, part of the the larger initiative that has happened in that state and other states too, but specifically in that state under Governor Ron DeSantis, who uh, I would remind everyone is uh, what, maybe the second or third most likely person to be president come 2025. So this is somewhat relevant. And in Florida, there are a number of uh, measures that have been implemented, whether it's the, the don't Sake A Act or the so-called Stop Woke Act, and this is related to the latter, 
which went into effect last summer, although some parts of it have not been fully implemented because uh, there was an injunction placed on them by a judge on the ground. Because a lot uh, of them seem mighty unconstitutional. <laughs> that was why, yes. <laughs> so the judge, I, I believe, uh, called this dystopian and, and Orwellian, which is uh, often gets applied to this measure. And the idea is, is basically that certain material has uh, been excluded from classrooms and businesses and other settings because it is considered unacceptable, right? And there are, I guess, three measures uh, that they have investigated these things based on material which could be considered pornographic and material which could be considered instruction on sexual orientation and gender identity. This is uh, for students in grades K to 3, I think. And then material that could violate this Florida statute, which, among other requirements, includes things that might describe a person or people as inherently racist, sexist, or oppressive, whether consciously or unconsciously, solely by virtue of his or her race or sex. And look, obviously, there are some reasonable conversations that could be had about when and how to introduce and explain these concepts, sure, but sure. taken in context with everything else going right. on in that state and across the country, I don't think we can read it as a good faith effort to improve Absolutely education. <laughs> this right. is meant to protect white people's feelings and to keep other people intimidated or underinformed, right? And to uh, pretend that racism never existed or or doesn't exist, structural racism, right? And it's meant to not acknowledge uh, real facts about the world, which are right. important to know so that something can be done about them. And uh, look, book banning or anything approaching book banning is, is certainly not a broadly popular practice. No, and thankfully I'm, not. Uh, probably preaching to the choir here, so I, I won't spend a ton of time on this soapbox. But I will say that there were three baseball books that mm. were implicated in this Duval County process, right? So one is called Henry Aaron's Dream, and this is a, a book that was written and illustrated by Matt Tavares, and it was released in 2010. It's for ages 8 to 12. And then there's Roberto Clemente, Pride of the Pittsburgh Pirates, written by Jonah Winter, illustrated by Raul Colon, published in 2005 for ages 4 to 8. And finally, a book called Thank You, Jackie Robinson, which was published way back in 1974 and written by Barbara Cohen with some drawings by Richard Kafari. So right off the bat, no pun intended, I think if you are running into issues with whether books about Jackie Robinson... Henry Aaron and Roberto Clemente are acceptable. There might be a bit of a problem here because yeah, something has gone terribly wrong. <laughs> Can you think of three more revered figures or players in baseball history on a personal level than Jackie Robinson, Henry Aaron, and Roberto Clemente? I mean, there are not many, right? No. When it comes to just like universally acclaimed and celebrated for their contributions to baseball and society. So, I mean, this is Jackie Robinson who has an annual day devoted to him by MLB and his number retired across the sport and then all three of these guys have prominent mlb awards named after them right and it, i mean there were books about like mlk and rosa parks etc also implicated in this process so it's not baseball exclusive but this is the baseball hook for a baseball podcast right and so some people were calling for mlb 
to do something about this, right? Yeah. Because MLB uh, traffics in sort of uh, glorifying the images of Robinson and Aaron and, and yeah. Clemente, which is appropriate, but also sort of absorbing some reflected glory, I would yeah. say, rightly or wrongly, from those figures and their association with baseball. And as far as I know, MLB has not made any public statement about this issue. And I did cross my mind that perhaps behind the scenes they may have done something. And I actually have something to semi-pass along here that that is about that. But this was a, a big topic because this was initially reported, I think, maybe back like last September or something, but it didn't get a ton of attention at the time. But there was a very viral tweet recently that resurfaced it. And also it was Black History Month. And then with uh, the baseball context, obviously spring training is starting in Florida at the same time that this is all going on. The point is, I bought these books for multiple reasons. Uh, One is that I have a a daughter who is uh, not quite old enough to read books with words (laughs) yet, but they all have pictures and illustrations. And uh, obviously I will try to indoctrinate her in baseball, you know, at some point, uh, hopefully not in a heavy handed way, but I want to make baseball materials available to her just in case she would like to avail herself of them. And she already has some other baseball books, picture books that she likes looking at. So I figured it would be handy to have these around in her little library. But also, I just wanted to see what the fuss was about and and see whether there was any possible grounds for considering these books inappropriate for kids at those age levels. So I read them. I have not read the Thank You, Jackie Robinson book yet because it's a, a longer, it's a chapter book. But I read the Henry Aaron's Dream and Roberto Clemente books, and and they're good. (laughs) I would certainly have no reservations about recommending them. And I would also say that technically it was not accurate that these books were banned, I believe. They were technically under review, right? So as part of this process and and Duval County— Review to be banned? Possibly to be banned, they had, <laughs> which is not great either, but there had not been a final banning determination about them yet because they have this whole you know reviewer process set up where they have people who read the books and, and deem whether they are acceptable, right? As, as I said, it, it's a fairly Orwellian process. And so these books, uh, no final determination had been made about them. And I guess the, the good news is that as of last week, They have been approved. (laughs) So these books, or at least the Aaron and Clemente books, I have not heard about the Robinson book. And I emailed someone in the county to ask a spokesperson, and I haven't heard back yet. But at least the Aaron and Clemente books are approved. Again, no reason why they wouldn't be, but they have been. And I assume that they are or soon will be available to kids. And, And this is a statewide initiative, and some counties have been more aggressive about enforcing it than others and obviously like for some of the officials involved like you have to feel for them because they're trying not to run afoul of these restrictive laws right and and that's part of the problem with the law is that you have uh, teachers and officials who are sort of self-enforcing it because they're worried about like being charged with a felony if they have these books on the shelves which is pretty ridiculous but something you have to think about if you're a teacher in Florida now and so in Duval it seemed like they were uh, more scrupulous maybe about erring on the side of these books might be banned or maybe we shouldn't display these and they were covering them up etc anyway 
they have now been approved and you have to wonder whether that would have happened if not for the attention and the outcry that happened when people realized that books about Aaron and Robinson and Clemente were being reviewed. So I have reviewed them and I have deemed them fully acceptable for my child, at least. However, I do have a a few baseball specific notes (laughs) that I took when I read these books because, you know, if I'm going to review a baseball book, it, it won't be for whether the content is acceptable for children, but it'll be about whether the baseball itself is accurate. And Reading the Clemente book, and I was not reading these with an eye toward being pedantic and uh, trying to find inaccuracies, but there are a few things uh, that in an otherwise unobjectionable and inspirational story that I would recommend to everyone. I will note, you know, just a a couple little things that are kind of in the the call us category that we often share when it comes to other media properties. For instance, uh, in the Roberto Clemente book, there is a, a passage that uh, says that when Roberto made his debut for the Pirates in his first game in his first at bat, he smacked the very first pitch, but it went right up the infield and into the second baseman's glove. Still, Roberto ran like lightning and beat the throw to first base. And I was I was reading this, I was thinking, huh, if he smacked the ball to second base, it's pretty impressive that, that he beat out a grounder to second, that he hit hard. That's tough to do. Well, uh, we do have uh, pitch-by-pitch data for that game because it was against the Dodgers, so thank you Alan Roth, Branch Rickey statistician. And we know that it was not actually the first pitch. It was a one-out count. And it was not a grounder to second. It was a grounder to short, to shortstop Pee Wee Reese. Mm. And it was not clear to me whether there was a throw or not because some accounts said that it was off of Reese's glove. So one minor mistake that I found there and then another was that uh, during the last game of the season, it says Roberto walked to the plate. This is in his final season, creaked his neck, dug in his stance, stuck his chin toward the pitcher and walloped a line drive off the center field wall. And I thought, Is that how it went down? I've seen this highlight, and it's hard to hit a line drive off the center field wall for his 3,000th hit. Well, it wasn't really to center. It was to left field, I guess you could say, left center charitably, and it bounced before it hit the wall. And also it was game 152, so it was not the last game of the season or even Clemente's last game because a few days later he played an inning in right field. There was also uh, an assertion that uh, after his 1971 World Series MVP win, it could not be denied that Roberto was the greatest all-around player of his team and maybe of all time which I thought was potentially a slight toward his contemporary Willie Mays probably an even better all-around player I bring this up not solely to nitpick a book about Roberto Clemente for four to eight year olds, <laughs> although that would not be out of character for me necessarily, but to say that when I read Henry Aaron's Dream after reading Roberto Clemente's book, I was blown away by how incredibly accurate and thorough it was. And I wanted to praise this because often we come to nitpick, not to praise. And in this case, Henry Aaron's Dream by Matt Tavares, I've got to hand it to him because he got everything right, as far as I could tell, in a really impressive sense where a couple times something seemed potentially off to me. And then I did further research and found that actually I was wrong and he was right. And this book, again, for four to eight year olds, has a, a bibliography 
that links to other books and also a newspaper accounts and it has all his stats at the end and it has an author's note about the accuracy and I'm so impressed by this book because not only is it well written and illustrated and a great inspirational story but boy did he nail the baseball details and went above and beyond to do it in ways that I don't think uh, the readers would necessarily notice or appreciate I just wanted to to let the world know that I deeply appreciated it in fact he actually uncovered and debunked some myths about Henry Aaron namely about how he started his first game in spring training in 1954 because the story goes that Bobby Thompson broke his ankle and that the next day Henry Aaron was in the lineup replacing Thompson and he hit a home run and Ted Williams was there and Ted Williams heard the crack of the bat and was like who's this guy wow you're going to be hearing about him again and it's a, a nice neat story And it's a story that is often repeated and told in many books, including, I think, Henry Aaron's autobiography. And in fact, it is still incorrect on Henry Aaron's Wikipedia page. So I will alert my buddy Joe West in case he wants to make any edits there. But as Matt Tavares established by uh, looking through the archival reports, it is not quite true. The timeline is a little different. Aaron started and hit that homer before Bobby Thompson broke his ankle because there were some other more minor nagging injuries to outfielders. And so he got a chance and he made the most of it. And also Ted Williams had broken his collarbone and wasn't even at spring training at that time. So he couldn't possibly have heard it. Anyway, as I noticed that this was the case, I also found that on his blog, Matt Tavares had, had written this up and had provided his sources and talked about how other sources got it wrong. And I thought it was really incredible for a kid's book that he did that. And so I emailed Matt to let him know that I thought this was great and that I enjoyed the book. And I asked him basically what had come of this possible ban and all of the publicity that had come of it, because it seems like not a great thing, but perhaps uh, the attention, it certainly led to my becoming aware of the book and buying the book, and maybe it led to other good things too. So here's what he wrote back to me. It's been a crazy few weeks, <laughs> and I it's complicated. I think that for me personally and for this book, it has definitely brought a lot of positive attention and has shined a spotlight on a book that's been out for 13 years now and really wasn't on anyone's radar before the Duval County controversy. A tweet about my book went viral a few weeks ago, which led to a lot of news coverage. Since then, I've had invitations to do TV news interviews, podcast interviews, newspaper interviews, and the vast majority of the coverage is in support of the books and against Florida's awful slash racist new policies. So it has definitely provided publicity for my book and for Aaron's story. That said, I think my book is kind of an outlier here. There are book bans like this going on all over the country, and there are a lot of authors whose books are widely banned, and it disproportionately affects authors who aren't white straight guys like myself. And while there is probably a little boost when controversies pop up here and there, the overall effect of these book bans is negative. Kids lose access to books, and a lot of voices are silenced. I did get a little bit of inside info last week from a sports writer in Florida. This is, again, Matt still writing to me. Apparently, Rob Manfred reached out to the governor of Florida's office and was assured that Henry Aaron's dream and the Roberto Clemente book would be returned to shelves in Duval County. Not sure if that's what did it, but they were approved the next day. Good for my book, but again, most of these books don't have powerful people advocating for them. Crazy that this thing rose to the heft of the commissioner of baseball intervening by contacting the governor of Florida. Strange times. So this is uh, secondhand. I I have not reached out to confirm that Rob Manfred did actually try to intervene here. 
And it would not surprise me if he did. And and I guess you could say that it should have happened publicly, right? Yeah. And, and that perhaps it is uh, spineless, again, not an intended book pun there, to <laughs> do it privately and behind the scenes. I guess you could also say... You know, like you could say it's calculated, you know, because uh, Republicans watch baseball, too. Right. And so maybe he would not want to inflame people and uh, provide talking points uh, for the right the way that the all-star game decision in Georgia did. I guess you could also say that maybe this was the more effective way to do it if this is, in fact, what happened, to do it quietly behind the scenes and to not blow it up further into more of a culture war issue that would then provide grist for the mill for the worst, uh, you know, worst faith parties operating and talking about these things, right? And if the idea is that, well, we just want to get the books back on shelves, then maybe that's the most efficacious way to do it. On the other hand, maybe it doesn't extend to all the books. Maybe it's just the baseball books. And maybe saying something publicly would bring attention to the wider policy and condemnation of the policy and would help other books or, or discourage other similar measures in other states. So... I guess you could uh, go back and forth, you know, if there was some sort of informal behind the scenes string pulling here, that's probably better than nothing. And I guess you could argue about whether it was the best way to go about it or not the best way to go about it. But I did want to share that and also commend the book and pass along Matt's thoughts on the effects of uh, all of this publicity in the past few weeks. You said a lot, Ben. I did. (laughs) Said so many things. Yeah, Yeah, I don't want to like overreact because you're right. We we don't have confirmation from the commissioner's office, but yeah, it's like just uh, you should stand up for all the books, right? Like you should Mm -hmm. stand up against the idea of the state being an arbiter of these things. And the thing I always find so strange about it is I I have limited experience as a teacher. I, I did TA when I was a grad student for a while, but you know, all of the teachers I know, they think a lot about like the appropriateness of various parts of curricula and making sure that as they are teaching concepts, sorry, the cat's knocking over all kinds of stuff on the desk. (laughs) Gabby, what you doing? You're (laughs) knocking over a bunch of stuff is what you're doing. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, Steve and his Scoops Ahoy outfit, that pop up, knocked right over. (laughs) It's a little behind the curtain. But like they... They spend a lot of time thinking about how do we effectively communicate concepts to children at an age-appropriate level. Well, like that's a big part of being a teacher and thinking about pedagogy. So, I I always find it so disheartening. It's like you just don't know what goes on in a classroom if that's your concern. Because I don't I don't know a single teacher who doesn't think about that and think that you know what you would. Well, the kinds of conversations you would have with a high school student about race in America are going to be different than the ones you would have with a kindergartner, but that doesn't mean you can't have them, right? Because mm-hmm. like those kids live in America. They're experiencing what it's like to live in America and experience race in America when they're outside the classroom. So mm-hmm. giving them tools to understand their communities and themselves and the institutions that are going to shape their lives, are, it's really important. And it's always so, it's like, okay, okay. So Ben, let's say they had gotten what they wanted and the the bands had gone in. 
Like, mm-hmm. it's not unusual for school groups to go to baseball games. What happens sure. if a school group goes to a baseball game on Jackie Robinson Day? Is the teacher just supposed to be like, I don't know who that guy was. <laughs> right. What's all of this about? Yeah. It's just so detached from- He was a great baseball player once you yeah. started playing for the Dodgers and uh, nothing more to see here, nothing more to know about why he didn't play for yeah. <laughs> a National League or American League team sooner than that. Yeah, I'm sure that our our thoughts on this are hardly surprising to anyone listening, but it is mm-hmm. it is very disheartening and and you know, I just think quite dangerous for how future generations of Americans are going to understand the country they live in. I right. I worry it will be quite far afield from the one they actually occupy. So Yeah, and in the Aaron and, and Clemente books, it's not even a focus. I mean, it could be if you wanted it to be, but it's fairly briefly touched on. It's just right. like, I mean, how can you tell their stories? I mean, unless right. you just say, uh, oh, they were good guys and good baseball players, the yeah. end. I mean, right. you know, like, you a big part yeah. of the reason why their stories are so inspirational is, is because of what they faced and what they overcame and, and what they had to deal with. And these books are, are just reporting facts uh, about you know where they were and weren't allowed to play and and the kind of invective that was hurled at them and uh, again it's it's not even like the focus of the stories and you can't honestly tell their stories or or tell the story of baseball or american history or or anything without acknowledging some of these things and and how can you equip kids to go out into the world and understand it without giving them some primer on that stuff so uh, the only thing i'll add you know the initial publication of Henry Aaron's Dream, which was in 2010, printed the N-word itself, you know, uncensored Mm. in, I think, two places. The version that I read, which was printed in 2015, did not. It it just didn't specify. It said something like, you know, they used terrible names or or words or whatever. And there's a a thoughtful post that Matt wrote about this on his site, which I will link to from uh, back in 2014 when they made this decision to revise it, because Initially, and you know, 2010 was uh, was different from 2023. I think in in how we think of words and language and and kind of representing those words, right? Not uh, the way that we think of of what that word meant, but just sort of how we represent it or or invoke it. And I think his initial impulse uh, came from a good place, which is that he didn't want to water down what. Aaron faced, you know, he he wanted to be honest uh, about it and and not just say, oh, there was some nasty stuff. It was like the nastiest thing that you could say, right? And so he wanted to be true to that reality. But after getting feedback from readers and, and also educators who were saying, you know, this is limiting the reach of the book because sure. uh, some people just, you know, understandably don't feel comfortable sharing it or, or reading that to a class. Right. right. And so yeah, in, in, the, in the interest of getting the book in more people's hands and, and into more kids' uh, eyeballs and ears, he felt that it would be better to, to change that just so that the story and, and the value that the story could do would reach a wider audience. So I don't know whether the edition that Duval County was reviewing was the initial version with that word or the more recent revised edition. You know, if it were the original version, I I guess you could say there's maybe more uh, reasonable grounds for considering the age appropriateness, but I'm not really inclined to, you know, give the benefit of the doubt to the parties involved here. And uh, I assume based on the content of the Roberto Clemente book, which was also flagged for review, that uh, it would have been flagged for review regardless Regardless, of whether the word was spelled out or not. 
So just uh, giving you a little update there, and and I'll reach out to MLB to see if they care to offer a comment on that uh, Manfred suggestion or not, and I will update if I hear back. But that's uh, what I wanted to say just to, to bring attention to those books and to let everyone know that Henry Aaron's Dream gets my highest recommendation, not just uh, as a nice story for kids, but also as an extremely more accurate to baseball than it had any right to be or, or need to be. It uh, passes with flying colors. So kudos to Matt. And, and both books are, are good and enjoyable reads. So check them out. Cool. Okay. So we will now take a break and we'll be back with Eric Longenhagen, lead prospect analyst of Fangrass, to talk some prospects and the top 100 slash top 112. All right, we're back, and we are joined by Eric Longenhagen, lead prospect analyst for Fangraphs, here to extend his lead as the all-time most prolific Effectively Wild guest, and also to discuss the recently released Top 100. Hello, Eric. Welcome back yet again. Hey, Ben. How's it going? Not bad. And you've already done a Top 100 Prospects chat on the Fangraphs website, so this is the chat after the chat in a different medium. You and Tess put this list together, and I've got to say, I've got to, I guess, compliment you or at least observe your moderation this year in limiting it to 112. (laughs) And also, I think there's a, a question in there, the fact that it is only, quote unquote, 112, because that actually reflects the quality of this prospect class, right? You noted that at least the the top of the class is a little thinned out, which I guess makes sense because last year's crop of, of prospect and rookie debuts was extraordinarily strong, according to an analysis I did at the end of the season based on Baseball America lists, just because those go back the furthest. There were 40 guys on the Baseball America Top 100 list preseason last year who made their major league debuts in 2022, which was the most of any year going back to the beginning of those lists in 1990. So I guess it stands to reason that if a bunch of guys graduate one year, then the next year might be slightly thinner, right? So you notice that. Sure. There are there are all kinds of different variables at, at play there, right? Some of it is just that the rookie eligibility rules have changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of it is the lack of a 2020 minor league season, not necessarily in a way that has impacted like everyone's development, although to an extent it has. But also because there was no 2020 season for anyone to generate like context for more recent struggle, perhaps. Like we just didn't have a a flag go up for random guys in 2020 that, you know, even if they've been injured or whatever for the last or struggled for parts of the last couple of years, like that would still give us context for that struggle that was like pleasing in a way. I also think that there's some like, bias, right? Like I think that we have all tended, certainly I am this way, a lot of the prospects who make the make up the top 100 are guys who are poised to graduate uh, because it feels good as a prospect writer when they play enough to graduate. Uh, and, and I think that some of the confidence in the upper level 
prospects uh, is driving a, an artificial move in that direction. But yeah, uh, you know, the miners overall are more fine than they are exceptional, I think, at this stage. Uh, the fact that there are just fewer minor leaguers generally because of roster reductions as a result of the pandemic is probably playing into this as well. There, you know, there's fewer lottery tickets out there who might be winners. So uh, that, that I think that's that's part of what's happening too. Um, and then some of it is just trends in in pitching. Like I know I am apprehensive about young, high upside pitching. So there are definitely teenage pitching prospects in the minors who have the ability to be on this list. And, and it's just that they tend to break at some point during the five years or so that they are developing in the minors, playing Russian roulette with their ligaments every fifth or sixth day. And, you know, there tends to be a lot of, of entropy happening in, in that part of the player population such that, you know, I've kind of moved off of that type of guy towards the back of the hundred. So there are just like fewer raw names that end up there. And then at some point for me and like Kylie and I together for a while, we were over projecting like the, like in one year, the 55 tier runs through like, you know, prospect number 70 overall or something like that. Like that's too many. Yeah. Uh, and so some of this is just like our technical flaws as we started to get a better feel for this process as like a full-time, you know, analyst with this type of scope. Well, and the pitching sort of attrition and, and nervousness that you noted isn't just isolated to the bottom of the list. I think we should probably, you know, as we start to think about individual players, talk a little bit about Espino and a guy's placement on our top 100 and how that affects us is, is very minor compared to like the potential career trajectory that an injury can have on a pitcher. But where was Espino before and then after the news that his shoulder was still a problem? Yeah. Um, 12th, <laughs> <laughs> which to be fair, as now he's I, 93rd, right? Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Like, but this is, if you if folks go back and, you know, look at the board at, you know, at the touch of a button, you just can sort the pitchers from each of the last six years, basically of prospect lists. And Forrest Whitley's at the top and Brent yeah. Honeywell and Alex Reyes and Sixto Sanchez. That's just one year. I just clicked on 2018. Like that's just one year at the very top inside like the top 30 or so overall prospects. And like Walker Bueller's in there and Kyle Wright's in there. And that took a while, but seems good now, right? Like Luis Gohara's in there. Yeah. AJ Puck is in there. So this stuff just tends to happen. Throwing a baseball really hard for a living doesn't seem to be good for your elbow or shoulder. So um, there, yeah, there is there's extreme variance in both directions for the pitching population because it is just so hazardous to your health, and that seems to be the thing that causes these guys to bust more than anything else. Is just they get hurt and then things aren't quite the same at some point. The ones who I would project to get hurt uh, more or are more likely to get hurt are the ones who have been hurt a bunch in the past. And now that's Daniel Espino because this is like incident number three within a calendar year where it was the knee and then during rehab from the knee, the shoulder. And now it seemed like he was a go. I was told he was a hundred percent go 
for spring training, like when the Guardians list itself ran a couple weeks ago, right. I don't think I was being lied to. And then, you know, everyone reports to camp and here we go again. So right. to some extent, this guy's a, you know, Espino is unbelievable. Um, and what I saw last spring out of him was really unbelievable. Just on par with some of the best stuff I've ever seen. Garrett Cole, Steven Strasburg, the whole deal. Post TJ Bueller. Uh, it was right there. And then this stuff starts to happen. And the guys who have fallen are the ones to whom this stuff you know, seems to happen. So uh, the pitch, pitching in general is crazy volatile, both because of the developmental tools that we have, how specific the means of assessment have become, uh, including like just biomechanical analysis that you can apply to pretty generic looking college pitchers that turn them into Gordon Graceffo and Tanner Bibby, right? So, you know, it's in both directions here where the variance is happening uh, among the pitchers. And then the way they're being used at the big league level has changed and has spread more evenly. The innings are spread more, which sort of clumps everyone's impact closer to the middle of a scale. So all that stuff is, is happening with, with the pitchers. Related to what I was asking about the maybe slightly thinner cream of the crop here than usual, I believe in last year's top 100, which was, uh, what was it last year, actually? A, a top uh, top 114. Okay, not that many more than this year. <laughs> yeah, but, it's not, yeah. Yeah, but, Ben. <laughs> but again, that's, a, that drop-off has like... got to be because of the, the rookie eligibility change had a huge impact on how many guys end up end up graduating because September roster days count now. So mm -hmm. that whole month is peeling the, the Gabriel Moreno's of the world, like just barely off, right? Mm -hmm. So <laughs> that's a big timeline in the sand. 2021 was a top 133. That's what I was thinking. Of. <laughs> anyway, what I was going to ask, by the way, I'm, I'm not criticizing. I think uh, no, no doubt. I... totally makes sense to include as many as, as merit inclusion, but it just it sets you apart, I think, in a good way from, from some other sites, but it's notable. But what I wanted to observe here is that I think eight of the top 10 last year had 2022 ETAs and they did all arrive in 2022 and the other two had 2023 ETAs and I think one of them was Francisco Alvarez who actually arrived last year and I think the other was Grayson Rodriguez who might have arrived last year if not for his injury so everyone at the top was very close to the majors whereas this year I think only four of the top 10 have 2023 ETAs and some of the others are like 2026, 2028 in a couple of cases. So it seems like, I mean, normally uh, the closer you are to the majors and the more certain it is that you're actually going to pan out and be a good big leaguer, the more likely you are to ascend the list if you have the, the required talent. But this year, it seems like there are fewer guys who are really close to the majors who are up there, which again, I guess makes sense because so many of them who would have been there already arrived. Yeah, I think um, some of it is that a handful of those guys are recent draftees, right? Like Drew Jones yeah. and Jackson Holiday. So they're, they're ETAs and truly like most of these guys' ETAs are just chalk with their 40-man timeline. And then right. some of them, and like Drew Jones and, and Jackson Holiday and to an extent Jackson Merrill, although he seems poised to, haven't really had the opportunity to accelerate their their timeline. An aggressive move up the ladder with that group hasn't been made yet. When that that gets made, 
uh, and maybe like Brooks Lee on the list is someone who uh, for whom like it already has been made and we should have made a manual adjustment there already. But, you know, until that that move is apparent like it was with someone like Julio Rodriguez, you know, like it, it just makes sense to leave the chalk 40 man timeline because of all the weird things that tend to happen to these guys uh, developmentally. So, you know, I think there's a lot of subjectivity uh, that comes with, you know, just putting an ETA on a guy based on your gut feel for his readiness and that it makes more sense to lean on that 40 man timeline, especially as teams tend to behave that way. Right. Ben mentioned that a bunch of the guys are, you know, a good distance away, but I want to talk about two. I'm going to make you talk about, pitching again and two guys who seem quite likely to have meaningful impacts on their big league rotations this year and that's Andrew Painter with the Phillies and Yuri Perez with the Marlins who are quite young but seem likely to to play a role this year what what can fans expect from those guys right and both of those guys are examples where their 40-man timelines aren't necessarily like have them in line with the 2023 debut, but it seems obvious that at the rate their promotion has been accelerated, that they will be up at some point in in 2023. Yeah, especially Painter because Philly has, Philly's in in win now mode and their rotation seems a little bit thin given some of their departures, the Kyle Gibsons of the world. And so it would make sense if if they think that, that he's ready and, I think he's pretty close uh, from from a command standpoint and from a like the third and fourth pitches started to come out in Reading uh, that that he's ready right now. The thing that might slow him down or at least limit his impact in 2023 is that he theoretically is going to be on some sort of innings cap. Both and that's true for both of those guys, Perez and Painter. Uh, they both threw about 70 innings in 2022, and the, the pretty standard industry increases like 20 annual innings. So it'll be interesting to see how both those teams handle that. But but yeah, I think like Painter has that prototypical look where it is like power fastball at the letters, monster slider, and then the different, you know, deeper curveball that he can land for strikes. And then by the end of the year in Reading, there was a, there was a change up too. Uh, it was you know it's not fully operational yet, but the fact that there was one and that it, his feel for it was pretty good, at his size, at his age, at his velocity, all of that stuff uh, is pretty nuts. And then that's true for for Yuri as well. The only you know you try the comp stuff can be dubious, but you do try to get a feel for it, and you watch Yuri Perez do his thing. And the only guy who I've ever seen look that way at that size is CC Sabathia, where it's just that type of like balance and power and feel for strikes and all of that, that stuff for someone at this size, at this age. And CC was up pretty quickly. That's the only one. And it's not like, you know, Perez's changeup is at that level or, you know, anything like that. But if I'm just trying searching for something that looks sort of like this guy, uh, that's what comes to mind. And so both those guys, I think, people should be very excited. Uh, Yuri got shut down towards the end of the late last year with arm fatigue, <laughs> but he was back before the end of the season and was 96, 99. Like things seemed fine. So, you know, at some point, you know, both those guys were in the middle of that top 10, sort of vacillating on either side of those 
higher risk hit tool hitters who are also in the top 10, like Ellie de la Cruz, Jackson Churio, uh, the, the two, you know, the top two draft picks from this past year, uh, especially Drew Jones, who just hasn't, you know, proven anything in pro ball yet because of his injuries. So much projection there. It's just huge ceiling. Uh, you know, the pitchers are volatile, sure, but, you know, about as, about as volatile as, as that group of hitters and freaky in a way that I, that I feel comfortable betting on. Let me ask about the top two, because some years there are a number of candidates for the number one ranking, and there's a lot of debate and discussion, and different outlets have different guys, and other years it's very clear, and there's an obvious consensus number one. In this case, you have two 65 future value prospects who are ranked first and second, Gunnar Henderson and Corbin Carroll, respectively. So was that a discussion, whether to go with Henderson or Carroll first overall? Obviously, both of those guys already arrived and impressed in smallish samples last year, but did not exceed their rookie eligibility Henderson is in what Michael Bauman dubbed the rolling zone, which is when you have more than 130 plate appearances in your inaugural season, but not more than 130 at-bats, because Scott Rowland in his uh, first season, he had exactly 130 at-bats, so he did not exceed that, which would have removed his rookie eligibility, and thus he was right. rookie eligible the following year when he actually won the Rookie of the Year award, and Henderson probably the favorite to do the same this season. So break down those two for us. Yeah. One of the first questions on the phone with scouts and execs was, hey, is anybody else belong up here? You know, can you make a case for either of these pitchers? Do you believe in Elliot De La Cruz hitting enough that, you know, he's up there for you? And the general sentiment was no. You know, Adley Rutschman is the type of guy who you want to put a seven on. Wander Franco's the the only guy that we've ever put an 80 on. And so you can see that like the this tandem is just a shade below the, that tier. And, and you know, Henderson's really, this is where like predicting versus scouting plays a role in it because Henderson is probably good enough at short right now that he's just going to start his career there every day. And like Jorge Mateo had a fine season last year, but Jorge Mateo for most of his life as a baseball player has like been tantalizing you with the hope that he would do what he did in, in 2022 and not really done that. So like I expect a little bit of a regression to the mean for Mateo overall and just think like Henderson's going to play shortstop. He's got 70 on base skills, huge power and, you know, like does enough at short to, to be there right now. Whereas Corbin Carroll probably plays left field and does basically all the same stuff. Like, you know, his at-bat quality is unbelievable. He's gotten so much stronger than I would have expected when he was in high school. And I loved Corbin Carroll in high school, but I thought he was like Brett Gardner, you know, like going to be really, really good high OBP guy. And now his forearms are huge. <laughs> and there's just way more easy power there than I would have guessed. He had some swing and miss stuff at the top of the zone last year, but by the time Corbin was in the big leagues, like go put on the tape from that Brewers series. He's on top of 94, 95, chest high, like he's on it. So I think he's starting to adjust to that. And his levers are so short that he, like he gets to wait on that. Like he's, it's easier for him to get on top of that pitch than someone 
who's long, like Ellie. Uh, and so, like, the degree of confidence in Carol's on-base skills and how much power playability there's going to be, you know, it's roughly the same as Gunner's, but Alec Thomas exists and is just, like, a little bit better in center field than Corbin, who can't really throw. So Corbin's probably going to go to left field, vacated by David Peralta, and predicting him to be in left field versus Gunner at shortstop is enough to just go, eh, yeah. Give me Gunner then, I guess. Right? Like that's, you know, when we're talking about guys with the same grade, you really are kind of splitting hairs, but that's the type of hair I'm splitting. I'm curious, you know, you mentioned talking to folks about sort of moving guys up and down and who belonged where. Who moved the most in both directions for you? Like who came in, you know, pretty high and ended up falling Espino aside? Uh, and who really benefited from, you know, talking it through with with scouts and data folks and and whatnot? Yes, great question. So, you know, Tess and I, we took the, sliced like the 55 future value tier off the top of the list at the onset. And we just organized all those guys lined up. Doesn't matter position, you know, age, nothing like we were just, let's manicure this. And then below that, in the 50 future value groupings, which included at the time like many more players, right? We want to put many more names in front of people as we're, we're talking through this than we're going to ultimately need and cut a bunch of guys off the bottom. But we're, we're grouping those guys basically below 40th overall by like their phenotype. Like here are the high probability corner bats in the upper minors. Here are the high probability like fourth starter types who are plug and play number fours on a good team. Here are the extreme variance guys like in groups together so that we have, you know, our sources talk through them in within those groups earlier on during the list making process, right? So we want to then line up the, the guys who are of similar type uh, and then start to mush them together. So in the high upside, like high variance Group. This is your guys who are like big time power projection. They're 6'2 and lean and really young and explosive bat speed, but maybe they have swing and miss stuff, right? Like this is the group that was Marco Luciano and Zach right. Veen at some point and O'Neill Cruz at some point and Aaron Judge at some point. That group this year included Miguel Blaise with the Boston Red Sox, who totally lit up the complex in, in 2022. This is your boy. Look at this guy's bat speed. Look how much room he has to add strength. He's fast enough that even if he does, maybe he stays in center field, like all the things, all the Luis Robert things. And some of the Luis Robert things when he was an injury prone mid level minor leaguer upon, you know, first signing, uh, was this guy swings at everything. And he kind of swings at everything because he does destroy everything, doesn't he? And Bo Bichette was the same way, where you're scared of the approach, but oh my goodness, like look at all this bat speed. And so Blaise, uh, as we dug into the, the the data on him, not all, like it confirmed how explosive the visual evaluation was. And I think most teams will tell me that the visual evaluation in Amateur baseball, especially high schoolers and junior college, and at the lower levels of the minors, is just better at predicting than the a data-driven model. Like the guys are still developing so much at that time. So the data here though does really support the visual evaluation and maybe even amplifies it because of the quality of this guy's contact is like insane. So yeah, like he was one 
where he was part of that group and people, he was more maybe in the middle of that high upside group. Uh, and people were telling him like, telling us, you know, to, to move him up and up. And then at some point with some of my last couple of phone calls, people who I you know, trust the most and talk through this type of stuff with, like they're the hammer for the list. Uh, they were like, yeah, <laughs> do that. It seems, seems like if you're bouncing him off of the high school hitters who go in the top five of the draft, he belongs there. Uh, and maybe is like the best of, you know, top three, top five type high school hitters who uh, have been drafted up there the last couple of years. So he's definitely one, the one who really moved up during the course of the process. And then the guys who, who moved down the most are probably guys who fell off. So mm. we're talking about like Dylan Dingler with Detroit, like guys who something was exposed in Dingler's case. You know, this was an athletic college catcher. And maybe some of this stuff will develop because there's a lot of athleticism and stuff like that. And I'm into that. But then he struck out so much and it's just like, all right, well, can't do this anymore. Brennan Davis with the Cubs, you know, just hurt a ton, back stuff, swing and miss issues when he's he's healthy, like scary enough to kind of move him off, um, which sucks. Like we love Brennan Davis. Yeah. Like really, really like him. And want him to succeed. Like he's a high school kid from my backyard. All the area scouts love him and his mom. Like, you know, people love this kid and it sucks. Then like Marco Luciano, some of the same stuff. He's had back stuff, had a stress fracture. It has kind of cropped up again. He's been limited this spring. His timeline is going to be delayed. It's It's been a bunch of that type of thing the last couple of years and just medium performance bat speed's still there but you watch him swing and it's like boy that's sort of center cut through the middle third of the zone and that's it like maybe that's the back that's limiting that or that's just what his feel for contact is so he's another one who who fell considerably i want to say that that luciano was like 18th at the end of the year where we're still just hoping you know ah the back stuff and look at this bat speed he's so young and uh but then he went to winter ball got hurt again and yeah. So time to slide him. Um, that whole group towards the the in the ninety overall area is is mostly distressed in some way. You've got Ronnie Mauricio with the Mets. His approach is scary. Daniel Espino we talked about. Noel V. Marte. <laughs> Mariners really pumped him, didn't they? And then uh, we're happy to trade him. So yeah, like his fall league look was pretty rough. Brady House has had back stuff. Luciano has had back stuff and performed you know, just okay. And then Mason Miller with Oakland is monster stuff, but like a long injury track record. All of that group is, you can see, this is how we're trying to think about it and, and line guys up is uh, through like thought exercises like that. This might be a similar question. I saw in your text chat, you were asked by someone who's uh, underrated or overrated online. And you said, I'm not online enough to know <laughs> anymore, basically, which is probably a, a healthy existence. But because other top 100 lists have, have come out from other outlets, uh, BA and BP and Keith and Kylie, et cetera, you probably don't study those lists that closely when you're making your own. But I wonder if you have any sense of uh, who you're significantly higher or lower on than the consensus of other prospect rankers or I suppose the industry as a whole other than someone like Espino where you had more information because you released right. your list a little later. Right. Yeah. So to an extent, 
I am aware of some of that. I am conscious about like feedback loops and like hurting and stuff that yeah. impacts like polling, which is a small part of the pie of what I'm doing, right? Like I am asking people what they think of this analysis that I've done like through a combination of visual scouting and like breaking down data. And so like I am avoidant. The place that honestly like it becomes clear is like in today's chat where the questions I have about a certain number of like players indicates who I am higher or lower on than most of the rest of the industry. So number one, I think it's Harry Ford. Mm. And I know that Mariners fans, they seem very passionate about <laughs> their team's prospects, uh, which I understand and appreciate. And so they want them to be very good. And Harry Ford, I like a lot. Like Harry Ford for the last year and a half plus at the site has been in my 45 plus future value tier, which is right behind the top 100. Like the list of guys who have a chance to make a huge leap within the 100, uh, but are, you know, risky or for, for whatever reason. So with Harry Ford, it's his defense, right? And it, that was the question in, in high school as well is, can this guy actually catch? And the answer is still no. He might be able to, but right now, no, definitely not. Like It is not in a good place right now. Some aspects of it are good. Like his arm is unbelievable. Yeah. And so that gives him the shot to stay back there. But, and, you know, he'll catch for the the Great Britain team in the WBC so people can watch this. His receiving is like nowhere near where it has to be. During the qualifiers for the WBC, and some of the, the guys from Great Britain are like pro arms, and some of them are not. And so like there's there's an example from that qualifier where like a guy hangs a 75 mile an hour curveball. It is like up above the zone and Harry Ford is late getting his glove there like such that he almost misses that pitch entirely and it's like stuff like that when you just watch him play defense it is not ready and it is far enough away from being ready that I am not I am not ready to move <laughs> him into the hundred now there's a lot of stuff to like about this guy as I said Harry Ford has Huge raw power for a guy his age. They have made some changes to his defense. He is like catching on a knee now, which he wasn't doing in high school. He was like a really high, like for a guy who's 5'10, his crouch was so high. And, you know, like you could see where the questions about him playing back there came from. Like just look at the angle of his hamstrings relative to the ground and then look at Yadier Molina's. And they're not the same. Like Harry Ford's almost like standing upright back there in his crouch. Uh, he's a tightly wound guy. He's way more explosive than he is athletic and limber in that like, you know, he's built like a bodybuilder. But Alejandro Kirk, who's built like John Candy, has something closer to the type of flexibility and catching athleticism that actually plays back there and you know if I thought Harry Ford was just going to be like a six bat six power guy then fine like I wouldn't care where he plays but I think it's important 
that he stays up the middle of the diamond, given what I think the hit power combo is going to be. And right now, it doesn't look that way. So not ready to move in yet. Totally see how he gets there. He seems like a great young guy who, you know, can will himself into being a catcher through, you know, motivation, right? But until he's receiving better, like, I don't feel compelled to move him. So he's one. Again, great prospect. Right. Like, a 45-plus is not, like, a bad player. Right, right. Right, no, like, a 40, any of these guys. Right. If you're a 40, you know, you're Mike Brasso. That's good. (laughs) But you're just, like, playing a small role. Like, you're a below-average defender, right-handed, crush lefties. Like, it's a limited, you have limited utility, but, like, you still take Araldus Chapman deep in, like, the biggest moment. You know what I mean? So, anyway, uh, Evan Carter with Texas. I like Evan Carter. Great soft skill guy. On base percentage, uh, above average center field defense. The hit, you know, hit tool's fine. And the OBP is going to be big. Just like not projecting on the power there. Don't see the sort of wind him up athleticism that I do with like a Miguel Blaise or even like Kevin Alcantara or uh, Junior Caminero, Carson Williams, guys like this who have monster bat speed, but Brandon Nimmo is really good, right? Right. So Evan Carter is walking that path. Brandon Nimmo had like a star level season and got paid on balance for his career. And he's been a little bit, he's been below that in terms of, you know, the way he's performed, but you know, he's Brandon Nimmo is like more like a 50, maybe a 55 overall career wise, even though like his he's peaked above that as, you know, this type of hitter, the OBP driven guy contact, you know, tends to do. Nicky Lopez had a four win season or something like that. Like he's probably not like doesn't mean he's a six. So, yeah, like I like Evan Carter. I think it's way more like skills over tools and that the ceiling is limited. And so I have him as a 50. And I think based on like the comments in the chat that like other people have him super duper stuffed and he's young and he's 6'4 and all that, but I just don't see the same level of explosion there as some of the guys who I think have a chance to really super duper pop. And as I shuttled the list around, Evan Carter wasn't on the initial iteration of it and the feedback was mixed as to whether or not he belonged at all. So I feel pretty comfortable about where he's at, but that's definitely one where I seem to have departed from the others. Were there any cases where new rules changes came into play as you were deciding whether to rank someone, even if it's uh, the ball being deader or positioning restrictions or the pickoff stuff affecting the running game or the yeah. potential for robo-umps or a challenge system, etc.? Has, <laughs> has any of that risen to the point where you might have bumped someone up or down because of how that could affect their outlook? For sure, I've thought about it. Towards the end of last year, I felt free to move in the defensive shortstops who I thought were special there, even if it was you know pretty light offense uh, into the 50 tier. So that would be Bryce Terang with Milwaukee, Joey Ortiz with Baltimore, Michael Garcia with the Royals was in there for a while, and then as... I lined him up with all these other shortstops, you know, the Perazas and Tovars of the world. Uh, you know, his physicality I thought was like a level 
below such that there's like going to be like no power. Uh, and he moved off. But, but yeah, I do think I'm interested to see how the second base position now evolves and like what the players who end up there consistently start to look like. I don't think that we will see like the Max Muncy, Mike Moustakis types there as often anymore, but I still think teams want to find a way for the premium hitters who are relatively positionless to like get into the lineup. Maybe we will start to see them move around more to be hidden to like where the ball is least likely to to be hit that day, depending on who like the starter is and like all kinds of other stuff, I bet. But you know, I also wonder if some of these pull only dudes, just, you know, the fact that you can't shift them anymore means that we get more bulky Max Muncy, Mm -hmm. Mike Moustakis type guys yeah. Because you can't shift them. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I don't know how the dust is going to settle on that. You know, so as far as the, the pickoff stuff and the, the pitch clock, and I think it's always been a good idea to just bet on the well-composed from, and I mean that like in a bodily sense, athletes <laughs> on the mound as starters. Even when some of the stuff that like you know we care about analytically now is suboptimal to just bet on guys who are built like and throw a baseball the way Sandy Alcantara does like it's a sinker okay but like look at him do it and just keep projecting i think with the pitch clock the sort of stamina and like mechanical efficiency that it's going to take to operate at that pace and maintain your stuff means that guys like that are going to be even like the emphasis should be placed even more on guys like that. So like on this year's prospect list, that's Painter and Yuri Perez and Brandon Fott and Mick Abel and Taj Bradley. And maybe Gavin Stone is too low on my list, like really athletic you know who's been in on guys like this? The Braves in the draft room. Seth Keller, Owen Murphy, uh, Spencer Strider, where it's just like, holy cow, look how powerful this guy's lower body is. Look how low to the ground he's getting. Some of that is helping the approach angle of the fastball, but some of it is also an indication of athleticism. Like You have to be athletic to have you Darvish's delivery, right? So, you know, I think that that even more in a traditional scouty sense uh, is is an important thing to to continue to look for. I don't know how the base running stuff is gonna. That's gonna be interesting. How the stolen base stuff yeah. really? What happens there? I I have no idea. But seventy seventy five percent success rate against big league catching. That's tough. The guys who end up playing there are Martin Maldonado. You know, right. it's not. It's we have more Maldonados than we do Jasos and Ryan Domitz. So <laughs> good luck because those guys can really throw Jan Gomes man like Jan Gomes is gonna pop like one eight so be careful I don't know how that stuff at the big league level is gonna I think the impact of it will be muted compared to what we saw in the minors it's funny that you bring up Atlanta because they along with the Royals I believe were the only two organizations to not have any representation on the top 100 whether you're counting the initial 100 or all of those dudes. And I can't think of two organizations that might be more diametrically opposed in terms of where they are at the big league level, but clearly have farm systems that aren't yielding at least 50 future value talent at this point. But I wonder if there were other systems that 
struck you as you were assembling the list? I know that we kind of weighted some of our early list publication toward organizations we knew would have heavy representation in the hundred, but were there other orgs that kind of surprised you either with depth or with the lack thereof? Yeah, that's a good question. Atlanta, Atlanta, it happens because they just say to their guys, basically, we think you're great. Go. <laughs> and they do not mess around. So Strider, right away, go. Right. Harris, we're not effing around. Go. Vaughn Grissom, you know, so they just, they have no compunction to just rocket guys through. And this is not, the fact that the Braves don't have a top 100 guy is not an indictment really of their system so much right. as it is like proof that, that what they're doing is good because they had as many good rookies last year as they did. I think that Atlanta's, that's one where like, I wish I, <laughs> I, li- I wish I lived, lived in Florida to see what the hell is going on in their backfields. How are they? They're definitely doing good stuff over there, I think. Robbie Grossman's swing changed not long after they got him anyway. Uh, so yeah, Kansas City, you're right. Um, some of that is like, you know, Bobby Witt and those guys right. were up. Right. Uh, some so of it's good. Have, but. Right, some of it is good. But the way the pitching has plateaus when it goes to Kansas City is a big part of why, you know, there's not like a big top end here. They've also had, you know, some of the international stuff they've done. Eric Pena, uh, Candelario, uh, Wilman Candelario. That's um, even uh, – who's the guy who they had last year too? Uh, like the whole group coming over internationally from them has not really – it's not – they don't pan out. So Suli Matias, right? So some of that's happening. Colorado, Colorado gets ripped on a lot. And I think to some point, you know, the their mascot isn't the only dinosaur-like thing happening in Colorado. Um, it's kind of funny that their mascot is a dinosaur. <laughs> Actually, now that I'm thinking about it, based on whether or not, you know, I'd be surprised if Dick Monfort thought dinosaurs existed. <laughs> anyway, but like... Colorado can scout hitters, man. Their system always seems to be, and certainly for the last couple of years, as their complex group from two seasons ago moves through the system, yeah, they do have a lot of good hitters. And some of them weren't on the top 100, but you can make an argument for them. Uh, Warming, Bernabel, and Adel Amador, and Ezekiel Tovar, and Yankiel Fernandez, like they tend to find a way to have interesting hitters around. And some of them haven't worked out. Like Ryan Velotti didn't, you know, plateaued, stopped hitting for power in Albuquerque somehow, and now has kind of moved on. And Tyler Nevin and Colton Welker and guys like this, but they do show a pattern of like successfully identifying hitters, I think. So Zach Veen is sort of floating still. I'm not a huge Benny Montgomery guy, even though, you know, PA and all that, but uh, they do tend to, to, to be pretty flush with these hitters of note. And so I think they deserve some credit for that, for all of the criticism that they receive for some of the other team building stuff, which I think, you know, is merited, you know, not really getting anything out of the Nolan Arenado trade. Like that sucks. Right. That sucks. And, you know, that's painful. So, you know, they're one of them. And then who else is like oddly deep here? Yeah. Like obviously Pittsburgh, they've been rebuilding. Uh, Baltimore system is is good. Detroit. I think Baseball Prospectus had eight Orioles in the top 100. You only have six. Why do you hate the Orioles? <laughs> <laughs> I think you had six in the top 66. Which uh, some that of it, good. You know, some of it was me coming off my boy Colton Kowser. Like there was just more swing and miss 
during the year. I was all over Kausser. We were as, as a group at the time, Tess, Kevin, and I all before the draft, like super in love with Colton Kausser and thought he was the guy to do what the Orioles did uh, with. And then just, you know, the swing and miss stuff. And you really start going, eh, does this guy really have big league physicality and some of that? Yeah, like he fell out. But I think Detroit, you know, Detroit, some of it is because you can see it towards the very back of the list. I don't want to vacillate too wildly on some of these guys who have been good historically and then had kind of a down year. The Nick Yorks of the world and and Jackson Job with Detroit, who they took in the top five of the 2021 draft. Uh, he's one of those guys. And certainly when we were doing this list last year, Kevin and I did not necessarily agree about Jackson Job just because of how apprehensive I am about this pitching demographic. But yeah, like his breaking ball does still really look great. So, uh, you know, he had kind of a meh year as you might expect a teenager who's working as a starter across a pro slate of innings might. But like, let's see. And then I'm also just on Reese Olsen. I just think Reese Olsen's changeup is so good that he's going to be quite good and like belonged here towards the back of the hundred. I'm not, you know, so I, and Colt Keith, left-handed hitter, big physical guy who he told reporters here at the onset of the fall league. Yeah, I weighed in at 245. I gained 30 pounds and like, I'm trying to get stronger because I'm going to play third base and maybe he's too big for third now, but boy, can, can he hit? And so I'm just on that Tigers group towards the back of the hundred in a way that, yeah, I feel pretty strongly about. And and at the onset of the process, if you would have told me that they had this many top 100 guys, uh, maybe I would have been a little bit surprised. And they have a young infielder, Christian Santana, who you could also make an argument belongs just based on, on his upside. I think, you know, maybe you've already answered this question in a way, but who did you have the most fun evaluating in this top 100 cycle? Like who was the guy where you're like, wow, like look at this guy. Yeah. Some of it is just watching Sedan Rafaela play defense and just be like, yeah, it's an 80. He's an 80 center fielder. He's been playing center field for like two years and already is this good? Like, let's, sure. If any of these guys is an 80 up the middle defender, it's probably going to be this guy. Uh, so that was a lot of fun. And then, uh, you know, watching, <laughs> watching, uh, Pico Armstrong play defense is, is a similar experience. Watching Jackson Merrill hit for six weeks in the fall league was also as close as I can come to a religious experience, I think. <laughs> that was really wonderful. And like to be able to do that for such a prolonged period of time uh, was a real treat. I'll never get to do that again with someone like that if he becomes the player I think he's going to be. He'll just, you know, the most... I'll ever be able to see him as like three consecutive games in some you know, big league series. Uh, so that was nice. And then, yeah, like <laughs> just the guys who have like a crazy skill. So yeah. like Edouard Julien with the twins, whose play discipline is ridiculous. Uh, he's another fall leaguer. Yeah, any of that stuff where it was just like spitting on everything and then destroying whatever uh, he decided to swing at was a big deal. And then I have my cheese balls who I saw on the complex and I'm just in. That's, you know, Sammy Zavala with the Padres, who I'm just betting, like, this guy's field to hit is so real, I'm I'm in, even though he's a teenager in, in low A. Yidi Kape with the Marlins, who I saw in April on their backfield and was like, why is this guy down here and Khalil Watson is 
uh, at, you know, with the low A team, like what <laughs> this guy seems, you know, more advanced than, than Watson. And so, yeah, like Yidi Kape has got that look where it's like, boy, you'd probably be, you know, a nickel corner if you grew up playing football and, but right. you get, you're a Cuban shortstop who I'm watching, you know, through a chain link fence in Jupiter. Uh, so that, yeah, like going, turning over rocks in the backfields and coming away confident in guys like that. Speaking of the Rockies guys, it took restraint not to put Dion Jorge on the top 100, <laughs> who, you know, another Cuban prospect who defected at a time when most of the money from the international class that he would first be eligible to sign in was already committed. And so he like waits a year plus to sign for something closer to, you know, what he believes he's worth. And, uh, you know, at least in that market where bonuses are what they are. And so it's sort of a de delay that, you know, Jorge is only in the DSL now, as opposed to having been on the complex or even at low A at his age and Cape as well, where Cape is 20 and spent the whole year on the complex. And some of the other 20 year olds that I'm evaluating him against were aggressively pushed to like high A at some point, but I still want to bet on this guy's baseball-iness. He can play shortstop. His body looks like that. His field to hit is that good. Uh, but I have to like draw a logical conclusion and slide him behind some of these other Kevin Alcantara's and Alex Ramirez's who are his age and have performed at a level or two ahead. Well, my final question is about a guy who isn't on the top 100, although he is on the board, and that is Noah Song, who we learned today has been discharged and is reporting to the Phillies complex. I, I think they have until opening day to add him to the 40-man roster, so they don't have to make a move right away, but he faces a steep challenge as a Rule 5 selection because he, in theory, if he's not going to be returned, has to be on the 26-man the whole season. So what should Philly fans expect at this point? Because it's been quite a while since we've seen Noah Song pitch anywhere, let alone right. in like a competitive environment. Yeah, so obviously we don't know, but... <laughs> It's impossible for me to do this at scale, right? Where you're really evaluating everyone's makeup and personhood and all that stuff. And like just the fact that this guy was at a military academy doesn't automatically make me think like, he must be a great person. But Noah Song seems like if anyone has kept himself in the type of shape and like physical condition who's stayed sharp while being away from baseball for a couple of years, I bet it's this guy. I bet it's this guy. And what I saw from Noah Song last when he was at Navy and then with Team USA as they got tuned up for a Premier 12 tournament in Asia here in Arizona, uh, that team had um, Wyatt Mills, Joe Adele. It was pretty stacked. And Noah Song was like touching 101 with a wipeout slider for that team. At Navy, the game that I watched him pitch in, an, in Annapolis against Lehigh and Levi Stout, who the Mariners drafted and then traded to the Reds as part of the Luis Castillo deal, uh, that game was over in like an hour 45 because both of those guys were nails that day. I have Noah Song's entire outing from that day up on the Fangraphs YouTube. That's what it looked like. It's 93 to 96. He's working with real pace. All of his secondary pitches are good. He is kind of relievery looking. I thought without the the naval commitment and what that did to kind of cloud 
his status at that time that he was probably just the best or the second best college pitcher in that draft class. Yeah. That he would have gone somewhere in that 10 to 20 range had he been free and clear to just be a pro baseball player right away. Philly should do everything they can to keep this guy around. If he looks at all competent in like a relief role by the end of spring training, they just have to do it. They just have to find a way to keep him there because of what it might be if you right. keep him for the year and then can maybe take a step back and develop him as a starter. Like you could theoretically slowly increase his innings over time, single inning relief, multi-inning relief starter because that role is just a more acceptable, that middle, that multi-inning relief role is just more acceptable now. If you keep him on the roster all year, then you get all his option years and right. like all of that, the roster flexibility that he doesn't have right now as we're sitting here. Like he's got to stay on the roster, right? But I think it's worth it to try to, you know, if he can even be a low leverage reliever from the jump, like just find a way to keep him on the roster at all costs because of what this guy looked like before he had to serve in the Navy. I'm super excited by it. Like I cannot wait to see how he looks. I'm so I'm maybe more excited to see this than any other aspect of spring training, ex except for maybe that last the last weekend of minor league spring training when everyone is tuned up for like opening day, and that last like Saturday or Sunday of minor league spring training. Every number one starter at every level throws, and you were just flying around the backfields <laughs> to catch three innings of every single affiliate, as many affiliates number one guy as you can get. Other than that day, whatever Noah Song is capable of doing is like number two on my list. All right. Well, we will link to where you can find the top 100 slash top 112 at Fangraphs, as well as the Fangraphs chat on the website about the top 100. If that isn't quite enough prospect talk for you, you can get some more on Fangraphs audio later this week, where Eric will be talking to Tess Ruskin about the rankings. And I guess I can say you can still follow Eric on Twitter. You shouldn't probably. He wouldn't even tell you to, but you can <laughs> until he deletes his account, which shockingly hasn't happened yet. It is still active at Longenhagen. And you did do a retweet six months or so ago. So you never know <laughs> when, <laughs> when it'll spring back to life and, and some sort of proclamation will uh, usher forth. So thanks as always, Eric, for your uh, hard work on the evaluations and for talking about them with us. Well, thanks for having me again, guys. And you know, I look forward to seeing you out there. Ben, I don't know the next time that we'll run into each other, but I hope it's soon. Me too. All right. We will close with the Pass Blast, which comes from 1972 and from David Lewis, who is an architectural historian and baseball researcher based in Boston. And this is going to come full circle back to a baseball book. This is baseball book themed again. 1972 was the release of The Boys of Summer, classic baseball book. So David writes, Khan has a hit with The Boys of Summer. 1972 saw the release of Roger Khan's now classic baseball book, The Boys of Summer, 
In it, Kahn recounts the history of the mid-1950s Brooklyn Dodgers, including the 1955 World Series champion squad. The book was met with rave reviews upon release. Editor Jim Corkven of the Kenosha, Wisconsin News wrote, A good book about sports is a rarity. Rude. But Roger Kahn's The Boys of Summer about the Brooklyn Dodgers is one that borders on literature. Sports books, uh, you know, they always uh, tend to be discounted as literature, but maybe it was more true 50 plus years ago than it is now. And Kahn's book, David continues, complete with lines of poetry quoted throughout, certainly did blur the lines between baseball and literature. The way he describes Ebbets Field in the first pages of the book exemplifies his skill with words, quote, Ebbets Field was a narrow cockpit built of brick and iron and concrete alongside a steep cobblestone slope of Bedford Avenue. Two tiers of grandstand pressed the playing area from three sides, and in thousands of seats, fans could hear a ballplayer's chatter, notice details of a ballplayer's gait, and at a time when television had not yet assaulted illusion with the Zumar lens, you could actually see the actual expression on the actual face of an actual major leaguer as he played. You could know what he was like. Now, more than 50 years removed from its original publication, The Boys of Summer continues to be heralded as one of the greatest baseball books ever written. And I had the pleasure of reading The Boys of Summer, I think, back when I was in grade school. So I don't remember it that specifically, but I remembered enjoying it at the time. I think there were some anecdotes in there because it was a kind of oral history-ish that may have not uh, risen to the same high standards as Henry Aaron's dream <laughs> when it comes to accuracy. But then again, that was decades before baseball reference. So I guess we can kind of give Khan a pass there. However, Jackie Robinson was uh, in the book. So if I had been going to school now in Duval County, I don't know whether I would have been able to read <laughs> The Boys of Summer, whether that? they would have left that one on the shelves. I guess it's... Uh, for a slightly older age group as uh, not a picture book. Anyway, I found it edifying and uh, it increased my affection for baseball at the time. So based on my vague but warm memories of the book, I would also give that one that qualified recommendation too. All right, just to follow up on an intro topic, I did reach out to MLB about the Florida book question, and the league did not offer an on-the-record comment on the matter. However, I was hip to the fact that when Rob Manfred was in Florida last week, he was asked about this by Mark Topkin, who covers the Rays for the Tampa Bay Times, and I didn't see this because it was buried in a one-paragraph item within a larger story about the Rays ballpark options. But it said, Manfred told the Times his office has spoken with DeSantis, and the elementary school-level books about baseball stars Henry Aaron and Roberto Clemente that were pulled from Duval County schools as part of a state-led review process have been approved and are being restored. And one other follow-up slash correction on episode 1968 when we were talking about position players pitching. I said that last season the position player pitchers had started the season doing not terribly and then progressively gotten worse. In fact, I had that reversed. They actually improved every month. They started the season doing terribly and then finished it merely lousy which probably doesn't really mean anything, but just wanted to note that I had gotten the direction of the trend wrong and was reminded of that by Baseball Prospectus's Rob Maines, who had written about that for BP. We'll have another preview pod for you at the end of the week. That one will be the Phillies and the Orioles, so that's something to look forward to. And in the meantime, you can support Effectively Wild on Patreon by going to patreon.com slash effectivelywild. The following five listeners have already signed up and pledged some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay ad-free, and get themselves active 
access to some perks. Andrew Ciccirelli, Brennan Kaizen, Aaron P., Miles Schachner, and Derek Solberger. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the Effectively Wild Discord group for Patreon supporters, as well as monthly bonus episodes, one of which we will be recording this coming weekend. You also get access to playoff live streams and computer games and discounts on merch and ad-free fangrass memberships and other goodies. And if you are a Patreon supporter, you can contact us via the Patreon site. If not, you can still email us at podcast at You can also join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash effectively wild. You can rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. And you can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod. We don't tweet a ton either, but we do retweet much more often than Eric Long and Hagen. You can also find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Dylan Higgins for his editing and production assistance. And we will soon be back to bring you one more episode before the end of the week. Talk to you then. And for now, I will leave you with a song that I heard when I took Jesse to see Billy Joel for Valentine's Day, one of Billy's baseball songs. Trying just to get the same